Have you ever listened to the news and thought, what is going on? Or heard crazy terms like pork and log rolling and wondered, how is this related to policy? Or know about separations of power, but are not really sure how that works? I'm here to help. Welcome to Who Wants Some Pork? I'm your host, Kateney, and I'm here to help you understand the basics of the United States government so you can learn how our government operates and be able to watch the news and actually understand what's going on. We cover topics like the three branches of government, terms used in the legislative process, and historical context of headlines you see now. This week, we're going to be covering the amendments. If you like history, this is going to be a fun episode for you. We'll first look at what amendments are, how they're passed, and then go through and look at each amendment. I'm definitely not going to be able to cover the complete history of every amendment, but we're going to look at what each one means, why it was passed, and how it affects you today. Don't forget to take the quiz on my blog so you can see your before and after scores. Let's get into it. Okay, so what is an amendment? Merriam-Webster defines it as the process of altering or amending a law or document, such as a constitution, by parliamentary or constitutional procedure. Basically, this is a permanent change to the constitution, and it's a very difficult process to pass an amendment. But the framers wanted it to be difficult. If it was easy, the constitution wouldn't have the same power that it has, and because we could constantly change things into it to fit whatever we wanted. So how can we amend the constitution? It's spelled out in Article 5, and even though it's a difficult process, it's pretty easy to explain. First, an amendment is proposed, which is either from a member of Congress or two-thirds of the state coming together requesting a convention. Then, both the House and the Senate vote on the proposed amendment language, and if it passes with a two-thirds majority, the amendment is delivered to all 50 states to vote on. States have the freedom to choose how they want to vote on an amendment. Some may have a state legislator vote on it, while others might call a convention. However, states are not allowed to change any of the language in the amendment and have to vote on it as is. And if three-fourths of states, or 38 total, vote to ratify that amendment, then it officially passes and is added to the Constitution. So now that you know how they're passed, let's look at the 27 amendments we have, starting with the 10 you might be most familiar with, the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution before it was even ratified, and this is thanks to James Madison. He wanted the Constitution to clearly state more rights of the citizens and lobbied with other members of Congress to amend the Constitution to add this. When the Constitution was in jeopardy of not being ratified in key states, Congress held a vote and added the Bill of Rights. But let's look at these first 10 amendments. The First Amendment is freedom of religion, speech, press, to assemble, and to petition Congress. And really, even though it's a lot of words, it's summed up in freedom of expression for some. Basically, you have the right to protest and ask Congress to fix things that are wrong. You can also practice whatever religion you'd like, and the government can't favor one over another. And the government can't stop you from saying or publishing what you want. This is something that's debated a lot with the topic of censorship. And so if you want to dig deeper into that, it's a really interesting Google search. The Second Amendment, many of us know this as the right to keep and bear arms. There's actually several ways to interpret this amendment. Some see it as more saying that it's up to the states to regulate, while others believe that it should be left up to the individual. Third Amendment is quartering. So what does that mean? The government can't force you to house soldiers in your home, which was actually a result of British soldiers being able to use private homes as their own while America was under colonial rule. And a lot of these amendments you'll see are kind of responses to what the British did, at least for the Bill of Rights. 
The Fourth Amendment uh, protects you from unreasonable search and seizure. So basically, this is how we get warrants, because the government can't search you or your private belongings without really having a reason. Amendment 5 is for when someone commits a crime, they have a right to a fair trial with the grand jury. It protects them from incriminating themselves. So if you're watching a crime show and someone pleads the fifth, this is what they're talking about. You also can't be charged for the same crime twice, which is called double jeopardy, and you should receive just compensation for any property taken away from the gov by the government. Amendment 6, this is another one related to criminal charges, and it's saying that the accused have the right to a speedy and public trial uh, and a trial with an impartial jury, which is made up of peers. So you can see how these civil rights also relate back to our civil duties, and in this case, that's jury duty. The Seventh Amendment is for civil cases, so lawsuits will have an impartial jury as well. In the Constitution, it actually says any case exceeding $20, and that's something that's never been changed. Even though that's about $650 in today's money, it's just something that no one has seemed to be bothered by. Uh, Amendment 8 is cruel and unusual punishment. What defines cruel and unusual has changed over time since modern standards of what's acceptable are completely different from what they were when the Constitution was written. Because keep in mind, people used to tar each other and publicly bring them around the city. We don't do that. Um, so, you know, they don't have a strict definition because it changes throughout time. Amendment 9 is people's rights. This is saying that the Bill of Rights are not the only rights people have. There's more that are not explicitly listed. And rounding out the Bill of Rights, we have Amendment 10, which is states' rights. So any power not given directly to the federal government in the Constitution should be left to the states. Those were the foundations of our civil liberties and rights, and we see discussion and debate about them constantly. As I said earlier, free speech has been a really hot topic of debate lately, um, but there's a lot of really interesting nuances to all of the Bill of Rights that I recommend you research just so you can be more aware of what your civil liberties are. So moving on from the Bill of Rights, we've got 10 down and there's 17 to go. The 11th Amendment came to be from a court case. During the Revolutionary War, Georgia bought supplies from a merchant to help war efforts, and then they never paid him. So once that merchant died, the executor of their estate sued the state of Georgia in federal court, and Congress scrambled to give states immunity on a federal level from these types of suits. So in this amendment, ratified in 1795, I'm going to do that a lot this episode, I'm warning you, means that states can only be sued on a state level unless they agree to go before a federal court. The 12th Amendment came as a response to a problem. Previously, the president was the person with the most votes, and the vice president was the person with the second most votes. But if you know anything about Hamilton, you'll know that Thomas Jefferson and his vice president, Aaron Burr, didn't get along too well. So this needed to be fixed because, really, they needed to get more work done. So this amendment changed the structures of elections, where you vote separately for the president and the vice president so they can work as a team rather than at odds with each other. And when I say separately, I just mean that they're not doing it based on who gets the most amount of votes and who gets the second amount of votes. You'll see on a ballot that there is someone running for vice president. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment were three Civil War era amendments that expanded civil rights as a response to the end of slavery. The 13th Amendment is one of the most important amendments in all of our history. It outlawed slavery except as punishment for a crime. 
This was passed in 1865, following the end of the Civil War, and President Lincoln was very involved with its passage, urging members of Congress and making it a key part of his re-election campaign in the 1964 election. This is an amendment that is still debated a lot due to it allowing slavery as punishment for a crime, which has been questioned a lot in prison reform. And if you watch the 13th on Netflix, you can get a full understanding of the impact of this amendment and its long-term impacts on America and specifically on black communities. Um, but basically that clause has been abused a lot throughout history. The 14th Amendment gives all citizens of the United States equal protection under the law, including those who were formerly enslaved. If a state violates civil rights, they can be punished by the federal government. And this amendment has had huge impacts for future civil rights issues, and really most notably the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in 1870, the 15th Amendment was passed, which gave black men the right to vote. It essentially says that no person's right to vote can be infringed based on their race or if they were ever enslaved. While this amendment did technically give them the right to vote, it also led to a lot of voting restrictions. Uh, so poll tax, literacy tests, and these were just to bar black men from exercising this right. There was also a lot of intimidation at polls, which we'll get into more. The 16th Amendment is also related to the post-Civil War era. After Reconstruction, many businesses in the South, and particularly in the agriculture industry, struggled to pay for high prices of manufactured goods, which was an industry that was really prosperous at the time and primarily focused in the North. So as a result, federal income tax became a topic of debate. These were once really radical ideas, and a lot of people weren't for them, and they were really seen as being on the far left. Um, but to shut down the idea, conservatives proposed a federal income tax amendment, thinking that it would never pass and then this would be something that would not be allowed by the government. But the plan actually backfired and the amendment was passed in 1913. In all, the 16th Amendment allows for a federal income tax that does not have to be evenly proportioned to states according to their populations in an effort to help industries and areas that were struggling. The 17th Amendment is one of the only amendments that changes the fundamental structure of the government. Previously, the members of the Senate were nominated by each state rather than being elected. However, many states would look to the public on who to nominate. Some would even hold primaries to see what candidates were most liked. So the 17th Amendment set the popular election of senators as just a general rule. And this gave a lot more rights to the individual so they could have a concrete say in who is representing their state in the Senate. Okay, 17 down, we only have 10 left, and we're going to power through. Aren't amendments just so fun? The 18th Amendment kicked off prohibition. This prohibited the manufacturing, sale, and transportation of alcohol. It was meant to reduce alcoholism and the violence that came along with it. This was an amendment that was led by women, uh, aiming to instill more virtue in the United States, and also because they were the ones that really had to deal firsthand with the violence that happened when their husbands were out drinking a lot. So this was really a female issue that they were pushing. And during World War One, there was already a temporary ban on the manufacturing of alcohol to help preserve the grain. So in 1919, this amendment was ratified and went into effect in 1920. But don't forget about it just yet. 
When you think of the 19th Amendment, think of the suffragettes. While expanding women's civil rights had been a topic of conversation since the early 1800s, women's suffrage became a large topic of debate starting in the 1840s after the Seneca Falls Convention, where prominent women's rights leaders met to discuss women's right to vote, get an education, and expand their employment opportunities. This was a massive cultural shift in the United States where women began to identify as more than just homemakers, but as a person with their own educational interests and political identities. However, many of these women's rights activists tried to distance themselves from black women, focusing more on voting rights of white women. There were protests all over the country for both sides of the issue, and eventually the suffragettes prevailed and the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. But this mainly still just extended the right to white women, as women of color faced other discriminatory laws that prevented them from voting, as well as intimidation and violence at the polls. The 20th Amendment changed the inauguration day of the president, vice president, and Congress. Having elections in November, the new president and Congress had to have time between their elections and their swearing in, called the lame duck period. During the 17 and 1800s, communication and travel were much harder, so they needed a lot of time before they could assume their duties to be adequately prepared. So they would be sworn in in early March. But in the 20th century, as technology progressed, this long amount of time was no longer needed. Communication was much easier, and there were a lot of advances in transportation. Additionally, they needed to resolve questions of presidential succession. If something happened to an incoming president or vice president before the inauguration, the new Congress needed to be in session already to resolve the matter. So this amendment, ratified in 1933, set inauguration dates for Congress on January 3rd and for the president and vice president on January 20th. So I hope you still remember the 18th Amendment and Prohibition. Well, the 21st Amendment repealed it. And this is the only time that amendment has been repealed. This was in part due to shifting attitudes. And there's a joke that says after 13 years, the Americans finally got thirsty. But also Prohibition had really just done the opposite of what it aimed to do. Initially, consumption of alcohol did drop, but over the years it hiked up to 60 or 70% higher than the pre-Prohibition era. And if you think about the Roaring Twenties, that was all during Prohibition. So there was also an increase in organized crime since mobsters made a ton of untaxed money on the sale of contraband alcohol. And there was increased consumption of alcohol at home as opposed to public settings like pubs or restaurants. And to make up the money lost from the excise taxes on liquor, many states had to increase their income taxes as well. This was really what many just called a failed experiment in America. So the 21st Amendment was ratified in 1933 to undo the previous mistake of prohibition. The 22nd Amendment is another one that changes the structure of the government a little. This is presidential term limits. Before this was passed in 1941, there was no rule on how many four-year terms a president can hold. When George Washington decided not to run for a third term, it began a precedent that was followed by every president for over a century. Then FDR broke that precedent and served for four terms and died in office in 1945. Being a Democrat, FDR angered a lot of Republicans for his lengthy tenure, and they proposed a limit of two four-year terms, which was ratified in 1951. 23, three for DC, is what one of my teachers taught us to remember the 23rd Amendment. Passed in 1961, this gives citizens of Washington, DC, three votes in an electoral college, which is the minimum that a state can have. 
DC is kind of a tricky subject because it's sometimes treated like a state, like how they're taxed by the federal government, but they don't have representation in Congress and they used to have no no electoral vote for president. So there's kind of a gray area there. There's a lot of debates for DC statehood and there have been from quite some time now, but this is something that will likely not be resolved within the next few years. If you remember from the amendments related to voting rights, I brought up that there was still a lot of restrictions on voting, and many came in the form of poll taxes. These were meant to stop low-income citizens from voting, but they mainly targeted people of color. The 24th Amendment was passed in 1964 during the peak of the civil rights movement and banned all poll taxes. This is still an issue today with voter ID. Some believe that it's necessary for a secure election, while others say that without the government providing a proper ID without charge, it's considered a poll tax. Okay, 25 of 27, we're almost there. The 25th Amendment has to do with who replaces the president or vice president if they resign, are removed from office, die, or otherwise incapable of performing their elected duties. And this was really to formalize what would happen in these cases. Vice presidents had always assumed the office of a sitting president if they had died. But in the aftermath of JFK's assassination, this was made a constitutional procedure. Additionally, if the vice president leaves office, it stated that a new one is appointed by the president and approved by Congress. And this amendment was passed in 1967, and it was actually used uh, in a couple years in 1973 when Nixon's vice president resigned, uh, not related to Watergate. He had his own scandals going on. The 26th Amendment is another amendment that expands voting rights, this time for those who are 18 and over. Before the age had been 21, but the Vietnam War began to raise questions about if younger voices deserved to be heard in politics. Support for the war was already declining, and younger people were seeing their friends being shipped off to war and sometimes killed. Protests with the sentiment, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, were sprouting up around the country. And this amendment was proposed and ratified within four months, the fastest ratification process of any amendment, and in 1971, all citizens over 18 were given the right to vote. And now ending with the most recent amendment, the 27th Amendment actually has some interesting history. It was first proposed in 1789 by James Madison to prohibit members of Congress from taking a pay raise while in session. However, it went ignored for almost 200 years when a college student found that it still was eligible to be ratified. He started a grassroots campaign in 1982 to increase public support for the amendment, and after a decade of fighting for it, the 27th was ratified in 1992. So there's our journey with the amendments from the 1780s to 1992. A lot of these are so common sense to us now that it's hard to figure out how some of these could have taken years to ratify. And many of these amendments reflect the current topics of debate or relate to the current events of the time. You can see a lot of common themes for the amendments. Many of them relate to voting rights, which just show how important the right to vote is in a participatory democracy. You also see some like formalizing the answers to questions like with the presidential succession and also just fixing things that weren't working at the time, like having the extended lame duck period or you know seeing the effects of prohibition and realizing that we need to undo this mistake 
Thanks for listening to the second episode of Who Wants Some Pork? Come back next Tuesday for another episode and make sure to retake the quiz on my blog and comment your before and after scores. If you have any ideas for future episodes or any questions you want answered, comment on my blog post entitled Requested Episodes and happy learning.